in general, how I operate is I don't think about things until I have to think about things. And I don't do things until I have to do things. You know, that's how I started finding founders. That's how I started the YouTube war stuff. I usually am like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to figure it out. One foot in front of the other. Exactly. Okay, so this conversation is from a post-interview debrief with our senior scriptwriter, Elise Caldwell. And so like, intellectually, I knew that I was going to go to a nudist camp this past weekend, but it didn't emotionally hit me until I was packing. And I'm like, I've, I've never even been to a nude beach before. You know, I, I've gone skinny dipping before, but like under the cover of night, and right. also like around with a few friends. Yeah, with the friends, <laughs> yeah. like not in front of strangers. Ariana, my girlfriend, she came over, so she was the person that went with me to the nudist camp because none of my other friends or team members went for obvious reasons because it's a nudist camp. And that's weird. And so and so we packed up and then we left and it was like a 6-hour drive to it's, it's around like the Santa Cruz area, right? So it's between like Santa Cruz in San Jose, in the Los Gatos Mountains. So we drive, it's night by the time we get there. We leave around 2.15. We get there around maybe 9.20. We go through this gate and it's giant like redwood trees and just like it's it's a hundred acre lot. So it's absolutely beautiful. Just surrounded by nature, nestled into this Los Gatos forest. I'm having the expectation that this is going to be all old fat people, right? Because that's like, that's what my mom kind of, told me or it's like you're gonna go to oh, this nudist camp and it's gonna be all old fat men it's like the nudist beach is what you get used to yeah um, exactly when you're in santa barbara and you go down to the beach and there's a couple old uh nude guys and a thousand percent that's what you expect that's like the trope right <laughs> yeah and so i was very surprised where uh we're greeted by these like two young like like you know late 20s pretty attractive young girls and uh they start chatting with us like oh like you know welcome to loop and lodge and they're giving us this warm welcome okay so i just have to ask cut you off really quickly and ask you in this exact moment so as you're driving in as you're in this car from that moment what are you feeling in that moment? And then what are you feeling when you step in front of these two girls? You have your girlfriend there. You just, you, you're, you're very limited in the people you know, and you're about to walk into this space. What are you feeling in that moment? Well, I'm just like surprised. I'm not familiar with the territory. And I'm also not clear on the distinction between nudity and sexuality. Because on, on the outset, right, like, they, they make a very clear distinction. It's non-sexual nudity, right? Like people bring their kids here. So it's not meant to be a place where, where, where nudity is hyper-sexualized or even sexualized at all. So we end up going to sleep and then we wake up. Uh, Lori says we're going to meet her around 9 a.m. And then the question arises again, like, all right, we're going to meet Lori at 9 a.m., are we supposed to be naked for this first meeting? Because uh, I think the, the funny thing is like we were worried about being judged for not being nude because we wanted to make sure that we were respectful of this experience. We stepped out and it was freezing. So we're like, okay, we're, we're going to wear some, we're going to wear some clothes. So put on clothes, walk over to the, the restaurant area. And so we're sitting waiting for Lori. Lori shows up. She's all like fully clothed too. And um, and then she gives us the tour of the property and it's still cold. So we're not really seeing that many people out. 
but again, beautiful. It's a, on a hundred acres, um, really lush, lots of trees. There's tennis courts, pickleball courts. There's volleyball courts. There's a sauna, a pool. There's hiking trails that go into the backs of the property, a stage where musicians are playing. Really idyllic. We end at this waterfall. And she's like, hey, this is where I'm thinking that we can do the, the interview at this waterfall. And she's like, this is the vagina waterfall made by my late husband. And she's like, this is like the labia. This is the clitoris. <laughs> and like pointing out all these things. Um, and she's like, this is where I think we should do the first ha- half of the interview. And I'm like, okay, um, cool, interesting, uh, excited. And then I'm like, okay, I should probably like confirm the the nudeness of this interview. And so I'm like, Lori, here at Finding Founders, we like to immerse ourselves in these stories and, and make sure we're getting as much of the experience as possible. So uh, would you be comfortable doing the interview nude? And she's like, yeah, of course. And so go back to the yurt, strip down with, and our Ariana strips down too. And we get the equipment. I'm, I have my uh, just my hat in my fanny pack and we step outside and we're completely nude. And the first thing I'm like confronted with is like, it's really warm out. It's kind of nice, right? And but I'm still nervous and we're walking up and we're kind of making jokes to each other and we're we're walking up the to the to the vagina waterfall. And then there's this kind of typical nudist that you would imagine a nude beach, like a slightly overweight guy and he comes up and like like he's like, "Hey, like how you doing?" But like but he's a little awkward, but really nice. And this is our first confrontation in the nude with another nudist. And again, like still a little nervous, but in that conversation, like everything, like you, you, it kind of like all melted away. Like the first 30 seconds I was nervous. And then I was like, okay, like I'm naked. This guy's naked. He's like fine being nude. Right. And I'm talking to him a little bit. And then uh, Lori comes in, she's in the nude. And like, it just like became normal so quickly. As I was setting up, I realized I forgot the batteries. And so I run back to the yurt. Right. And like, you know, when you're running, the th- things are just moving around, swaying <laughs> not, from not side to side. Not quite held in in the same way. Not quite yeah. held in, uh, helicoptering around. And I'm like running yeah, back yeah. and forth because I forget things like a couple times. And I'm just like, it just, it became more about getting the batteries and running quickly over there than being worried about being naked. So being perched next to a waterfall called the Vagina Waterfall, we began our interview. So um, what would you say Lupin is? If you, to, to people who have never heard of it, don't know what it is, what is Lupin? Lupin is a private club. It's a retreat. It's a campground. It's a resort. Lupin is about being natural and the freedom to be nude And it's also about not having body shame and not judging other people and acceptance of others. Before all this, the the environment you grew up in, I I would say, is a a little bit more structured. We spent four years during Vietnam in Guam on on a military base. Uh, It was kind of surreal because we had to worry about, you know, all the landmines and and the grenades and, and uh, bombs washing up on the shore from World War II. You know, we were in caravans of missiles going from uh, to the air station. And in between all the, this caravan, it was our little yellow school bus. And we kept, you know, we, oh, 
that's five B-52s. So they were like a regular sight when I was growing up. Was, that, was it just so normal that it was just part of daily life or was there this cloud of fear that covered the island? Or That was just life, yeah. And so it was like moving every two to four years. I feel that I can travel anywhere and get along with a lot of people and make friends uh, because I, you know, I was the new kid so many times. Um, I went to four eighth grades. Four eighth, so that's four different schools in a year. Yes. We had a, quite a few exchange students at my high school, and, and I thought it was just really cool that they, you know, had this experience. And I, I love to travel, so I thought, okay, I'll sign up. So because I, you know, had three years of German, they, um, they selected Switzerland for, for me. So, like, what was your expectation of what Switzerland was? You know, the architecture was different. The sense of time was different. Um, the food was really different. You know, I didn't realize that people speak Swiss German. Which is different than German, right? Yeah. So, like, the, I imagine that made it pretty hard to socialize. Yes, and then the dialects are very different from, like, one canton to another. So when somebody speaks a, another Swiss-German dialect, it's like, okay. Now I have to adjust again. <laughs> you were also staying with a host family, right? Yes. My host family told me on Thursdays uh, we go to the sauna. And I said, oh, great. And so I went and I was in the women's changing room thinking it was, you know, a women's section and a men's section. So I put my clothes in the locker. I walk in and uh, opened up the sauna door and everyone looked at me and I was like, wow, it's co-ed. Was that uncomfortable? No, I just said, okay, when in Rome, do with the Romans. So I got my towel and I sat down on a, on the bench and I said, okay, this is what we do on Thursdays. Yeah, it's like one in Rome, right? But as you're Experiencing, and I'm thinking even now, like doing this interview, nude. It's interesting how quickly you adapt to something that, in in certain circles, can be so taboo, and it feels like nothing, right? So, like, what was your your adaption like? I just felt a really great sense of freedom to to swim in the pool without clothes, or to be in a sauna without, you know, fabric sticking to you. When you say freedom, can you like tell me a little bit more what you mean by that? I felt like it was freeing that um, you you were less judged by, you know, you know, what you wore, what brands you wore, what kind of shoes. It was more of a level playing ground. You were just another person that was just natural. Do you have any questions? About what? Just about being nude. Well, I knew from the get-go there's there's a difference between just being nude and being sexual. The, the, the two are, for me, in my mind and from my early experiences, have always been separate. I think this is one thing that really stood out to me. The difference between nudity and sexuality. It's something that you immediately feel upon arriving at Lupin. We're so accustomed to naked bodies being sexualized, and I think a lot of the discomfort around being nude stems from this. But at Lupin, it felt so normal. We all just went about our way, exposed but free. It's interesting to take these things in a mythological direction. It kind of makes me think of the story of Adam and Eve from the Bible. That story talks a lot about nakedness and the shame that ultimately leads them to wear clothing. But what happens when there's no shame about being naked? 
when your body's just a body, an important part of you, and not some burden to hide. These are all things I thought about during and after my time at Lupin. Anyways, food for thought. But now, back to Lori. I was in grade 13 in Switzerland, and then I came back, you know, after my year abroad. And then you started UC Santa Cruz? I went to UC Santa Cruz. You're, you're in the art history program from, from architecture. How does the conversation come up about this place, Lupin? Yes, and my friend um, introduced me to, to Lupin, and I, um, I felt super comfortable here. Yeah, how did you meet her? And she was, in, she was a classmate. She thought I would like it. And so, do you want to go? She said, I'm, I can drive. And I said, sure. So I... Did she say what it was? Not really. <laughs> okay. So she, so she kind of like assumed that you would be okay with it, but didn't, yeah. didn't she just like, here's nature. And then you arrive and it's nudist. No, I think she told me um, they have a good restaurant and let's have lunch there. <laughs> Were you surprised? Um, I had already been used to it in Europe. Okay, but you come on. You must have been a little bit so like I, even I would think it was really cool. But if someone said, "Let's get lunch somewhere," and then I see a bunch of like nude people coming around, especially you know I I've only maybe been exposed to it once in Switzerland, I would be like, "This is cool," but like, what the heck? Like, I didn't even know this place existed in America. No, I just fell in love with it. And I like that there were so many different people of all different ages. Then I met this woman who was 90 years old who spent, you know, her summers living at Lupin. And her name was Magda. And she was so incredibly beautiful and so comfortable with her body. And, you know, she, I just thought, wow, you know, I'm not fearing, you know, growing old because here's this 90 year old woman that is just stunningly beautiful and comfortable in her skin and just love to you know lay out on a lounge chair and read a book so do you think this place made you more comfortable with who you are and your body and absolutely why do you think that is because when you see people from all different shapes and walks of life and you say well you know there's no such thing as a, a perfect body Everyone, you know, I know among my women friends, you know, say, oh, I wish my thighs were, were thinner or, you know, I wish my, my breasts weren't so saggy or I need to lose 10 pounds and then I can take off my clothes. And then when you're here and you see all different shapes and sizes and you, and you realize, you know, there is no ideal beauty. Because there's beauty in all of these forms. Yes. And in, in all stages of life, you know, this is, this is who I am. Accept me as I am. Lupin presents an entirely different concept of beauty. Today, with the rise of social media, we're inundated by pictures of perfection. And unsurprisingly, several studies have shown that social media promotes negative body image, something that's closely linked to serious health issues such as eating disorders. I mean, think about most of the pictures you see on Instagram. They're tailored to make the person posting look their absolute best. And then we see our body and we compare it. We forget that most people's bodies simply don't look like that. We hide ours away. As though the only bodies worthy of being shown are the ones that society says are beautiful. And it goes without saying, being nude is vulnerable. If you expose what you really look like, you're suddenly subject to scrutiny, to judgment. And that can be really hard. But at Lupin, things were different. 90-year-old Magda could bask with pride in her free-weathered body. It was a token of age, 
wisdom, experience. She was free, free to just be in her own skin, free from judgment. But freedom wasn't the only thing Lori would encounter at Lupin. I met someone special here. We had a a fireplace in our old uh, restaurant. So we casually started a conversation and I thought, wow, he's interesting. And what was his, did he have a role here at Lupin? He never told anyone what his role was here. He just said, I'm Glenn. Why do you think that is? Because he used to, he was a member and he wanted um, people to see him, you know, as a fellow uh, naturist, a fellow nudist. No titles, no clothes, no distinctions. No. Just people. Just people. So who was he actually and when did you find that out? Someone told me that he owned Lupin and that he, you know, leaving a, a high tech career that he was the CEO. He, um, he was a, a little bit you know, reserved. And I actually really didn't think much of it. So you you meet this person, Glenn. Do you get closer to him? Yeah, we were friends. And then he invited me, I think, to dinner or something. Do you know anything surrounding the reason that he decided to maybe leave uh, Silicon Valley life behind and be more with nature? Yes, he he said he found the corporate life soul-sucking and that he um, was having a lot of boardroom battles and he said he wanted to to be in, in nature and this was the same time his, his first wife um, decided she didn't want to be married anymore. So I imagine that's like a really confusing and hard time for him, but also finding solace in this place too and building it. Well, a lot of people come here to heal, and we have a lot of people going through um, different medical things, especially chemo, and they find being at Lupin very healing, or people going through divorce, or usually if people are, you know, corporate dropouts, they usually last three to five years, and they come in and said, I've had it, I want a simple life, I want a, you know, a minimal life, and, and I'm, you know, really happy being, you know, the pool and spa person. I want to talk about a awakening that you had here in 83. So my friend, Andrea, that introduced me to, to Lupin said, hey, let's go to the quiet area. So I said, great. Got our towels out. We, you know, walked down. And so I thought I was going to have like this, you know, nice afternoon. And I sat on a bee, a yellow jacket, actually. And I started swelling. And Did you realize it was bad the moment that you got stung? I didn't know. I was wondering what's going on. This is really horrible. So I went to the restaurant and talked to the the manager. And in the meantime, it was getting harder and harder to breathe. And I was swelling. So they called 911. I was in full-blown anaphylactic shock. So they got an ambulance up here. And in the meantime... Um, uh, you know, one of the, the staff put me in the pool because I was burning up hot and I was pulling at my skin, trying to keep the pain, take the pain away. I had no idea what was going on. The paramedic was panicking in the back of the the ambulance. And then I could feel that I was starting to lift out of my body. Do you remember yourself lifting out of your body? Like, was there an emotion associated with that? 
it was it was me uh, feeling light and watching the and feeling the paramedic panic. Were you afraid? No, I didn't know what was going on. It's just confusion. Yes, and so uh, they called my mom, and uh, my mom was going, "Why is Lori being such a baby over a yellow jacket sting?" <laughs> And then they said, no, this is serious. It was, she almost died. And after the, that experience, I started questioning everything. What do you mean? Well, I felt like I examined everything a lot closer that, you know, life is so transitory and and you, you could lose it so fast. I just, just got out of the the box of my upbringing faster and I also was really really interested in in sculpture and I thought okay well I'm gonna try being a sculptor until I'm 30 and uh, if that doesn't work then I'll figure out plan b why did you give yourself a ultimatum though because it was just such a I knew it was such a slim chance of being able to to be successful in in my career do you remember anyone like giving you the business on like, hey, this is this is actually your chance. Well, I had a professor named Jack Say Jack. He said on our last day, um, now that you're going out in the world, there's very few of you that are going to be able to make it in the art field. What do you think his intention was behind saying that? I think he was being realistic. He also told me that if you're serious about sculpture, Lori, you need to go to Italy. So I went to Italy after I graduated. I was uh, an au pair in Ibiza for five weeks. And, <laughs> wait, wait, yeah, Ibiza? How was that? It was pretty wild. <laughs> and the nude beach I found was actually um, transgender gay beach. How did you incorporate that? The same thing, you know, when in Rome. Yeah. Why do you think yourselves accepting? Because, you know, new experiences aren't ones where you're judging people it's where you're accepting it like it's confusing like how you can have that well I think part of it is that you know I grew up in a military family where we moved a lot and so you learn how to adapt pretty fast Uh, the other thing is um, at the time I was growing up there was very few um, you know biracial people and the fact that you know my mother um, had blonde hair and blue eyes and I was closest uh, to my older brother who you know was blonde and green eyed and they would think you know you guys can't be related and so I think just you know my upbringing was one that was just uh, you know adapting acceptance is crucial to feeling at home in a community and Lori knew this she knew what it felt like to be on the outside to move from place to place to be different and being at the nude beach served as a great leveler People are different, and that's something to celebrate, not hide. And in Lori's near-death experience, the value of this became even more apparent. As she said, life is transitory. It's fragile. There's not a whole lot of time to waste, and so she decided not to waste it. With this new perspective on life, she felt an urgency to explore. And so she did in Europe. And when in Europe, you never know who you're going to meet. I didn't go to my graduation because uh, I was I got better airfare to go go to Europe. 
<laughs> and I sat next to a now very famous artist called Not Vital. He told me he was on his way to Petrosanta in Italy and that if I needed a job, he could hire me as a studio assistant. Oh, wow. So I said, great. And so after Ibiza, I went to Petrosanta. So what was the experience like when you landed? I, I took the train and I had, I don't know, maybe $200. I stayed at, uh, you know, like a bed and breakfast. And I went to the bar where all the sculptors hang out. And I asked, hey, does anyone know Not Vital? And they said, oh, yeah, Not Vital left two weeks ago. Wait, 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 wait. I thought you had a job with him. Yeah, but he had already left. What? So I didn't have a job. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to stay until my $200 run out. I went around and to see if, uh, you know, I could carve some marble. And then after the fifth um, marble yard turned me down, they said, no, we don't accept women or we're not accepting you because you're going to distract the, the craftsmen. Wait, what did you say to them? I said, well, I, you know, if you're not going to let me carve here. I got to go find someplace else. And you're trying to make it in this, in this right. world that is just shutting doors in your yeah, face. Yeah, they, said, they said that women don't sculpt. Was there ever a moment where you believed them? No, no. They, they would point to me and said, you should be home cooking. Are your feelings hurt by that? Or are you just like badass enough to let it <laughs> run off your shoulders? I didn't think much of it. And I, I met this group of women and Marcy said, hey, why don't you come stay with me? I got a you know bed in my living room and you can carve in my studio. There's a guy that's hiring artist assistants to sand down his marble, which is a really boring job, sanding, you know, eight hours a day. And so I said, thank you, Marcy. And so I became friends with this really strong group of women. Before I moved in with Marcy... At the bed and breakfast, there was this really nice guy, absolutely drop-dead gorgeous, writing his notes, and he said he was going to Florence and that I, I want to catch a ride. And I said, sure, and then he showed me, you know, all the insides of Florence, some really great, you know, hidden away sculptures. He offered me a job to be a studio assistant, and I took it, and... Did this job actually happen, or did he dip two weeks later? Yeah. Yeah, no, he, though he, I think he had to go to, I don't know, Berlin or, or Paris. And so I stayed with Marcy. And then when uh, he got back, I worked for him. And I was in, in Petrosanta for about 10 months. And that's when I had my first uh, professional exhibit. So what did that culmination feel like? Because it's like, I'm just, I'm just imagining how much you had to go through to get to that point. And now you're here standing in front of your work, mm -hmm. presenting it to the world. Yes. What was, what were you thinking? That I, I did what I wanted to do in Italy and that I would, um, you know, it's time to go home. And then I got on the plane at home and then I told, uh, I had called Glenn and uh, told him, I'm, I'm going to be in Oakland at like 2 a.m. in the morning. Can you pick me up and not tell anyone I'm back? I need to decompress. It's been uh, quite an a adventure. Um, at Lupin, I have always felt accepted. 
And I also was, you know, not just a regular member. I was, you know, Glenn's girlfriend. We just started traveling to different nudist business and conferences, conventions. So Glenn started a trade association with the business owners in North uh, North America, and we would meet for uh, a conference and discussing the ind- industry and the changes and, you know, various issues people had. So he started the, the Trade Association of Nude Recreation. So I would attend the conferences and visiting the different businesses that he got together to build, you know, the association and also a lot of the marketing. And was that to grow Lupin? Oh, of course. Yeah. And, and having, you know, a better perception of what social nudity is about. And like, what did those conversations and conventions actually lead to? Well, it was uh, with, you know, other other businesses. And then Glenn had always had a plan on where he wanted to, um, you know, take the business. However, it was just very difficult. Um, You know, I'd said we have like 34 and now I think there's 36 agencies that uh, we interact with to to stay in compliance or pay taxes or something to to keep the, the business, you know, open. And it's, you know, you know, California is so, you know, regulated. So a lot of the things that he wanted to do were really difficult. We'll be right back after this break. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the producers of Finding Founders. It's December, which means we're firmly in the trenches of giving season. I wanted to know how people are approaching their holiday shopping this year, so I went with Nick, one of our audio editors, to our local mall to find out while handing out chocolates to spread the holiday cheer. Can I have you say your name for me, please? Jerixa. Charlie. Jess. Elizabeth. Ashley. And how has your holiday shopping experience been? Has it been difficult? It's exhausting. It's a little difficult because we're traveling a little earlier than we normally do. So what kind of stuff have you been looking to to get today while you're holiday shopping? Right now, it's mostly for my children. Uh So looking for things from Fushin, Among Us. seems you've had time to shop, but have you had time to listen to podcasts? I do. I actually do listen to a lot of podcasts. No, I, I've never like found a good one that's like been my thing. Oh, well, I recommend that you listen to Find New Founders. We're also online, like cool. online shopping. Okay. And what we are is we're a podcast cool. that talks with entrepreneurs from people who started from nothing and turned into something. That's so cool. My brother will definitely be into that. And there you have it. Share Finding Founders with your friends and family this holiday season to give the gift that keeps on giving all year round. Now, back to the podcast. This is an ad for Roundup for Lawns. It kills weeds down to the root without harming your lawn. It works on crabgrass, dandelions, clover. It works on weeds with names you can't even pronounce. It's Roundup for Lawns. When used as directed, always read and follow pesticide label directions. But it wasn't just expanding Lupin Lodge that would be tough. She was about to enter one of the toughest years of her life. My mother became sick with pneumonia and she unexpectedly died from a massive heart attack. And I was very close to my mother. We all in my family were very close to her. She was the heart and soul of our family. Um, How did you manage that? It was horrible. So um, then uh, I got hit in the head with the ball of an overhead hoist and swung and hit me in the backside of my head and I was knocked out and then I was in incredible amount of pain. Did you know what, how serious it was? Um, 
I just called Glenn and said, Hey, I, I need you to come get me. I need, I, I, I think I um, need to go to the hospital. And he heard what happened to this and told the student that was operating the overhead hoist, you could have killed her. And I realized, yeah. And then I broke up with Glenn and I said, you know, we don't have the same values. I need to go my own way. I told him that I felt that I would be um, really sorry if I didn't have a child. I wanted that experience. Hmm. And he said, absolutely no way. I'm so happy with my life. I don't want to have a child. And um, I said, well, I do. Why? Um, Because I just felt like I wanted that experience and uh, it was everything that I thought it would be and then more because it just totally expands your world, how you see the world, um, your priorities and in a very good way. Where it makes you care very deeply for something way outside yourself. Yes. Hmm. I'm imagining if I had an accident like that happened to me, if my mother passed away, I would be looking for support in like any way that I could find it. And it seems like that relationship could have offered that support. Yet you were also strong enough during that time to realize like those values were more important than maybe the comfort of that relationship. You know, I, I learned how to deal with, you know, the chronic pain from the head injury by doing biofeedback and meditation and did a lot of physical therapy. Spirituality seems like you, something that you plunged yourself into. Yep. And in 2000, something good happened. It was really good. Um, it was uh, Glenn proposed, and we planned to have um, a child. What changed? Well, he didn't think I would get pregnant. <laughs> ah, I see. And it happened. It was uh, it was like uh, unreal. It was surreal. Like we couldn't believe it. And when I um, went for my first checkup, and they said, "Oh, you're having twins. There's uh, one sack, and you're having identical twins." And I said, oh. How was the birth? I try not to think about it. I was uh, in labor for over 50 some hours. They told me I had to stop screaming because I was scaring everybody on the ward. Holy shit. (laughs) 50 hours. 52 hours. The first baby I saw at the corner of my eye. And then the second baby I didn't see at all. I was just concentrating on, you know, delivering the baby and... So I didn't get to, to meet her for a while. When did you get the hold on? Um, I um, snuck out of my room with my IV and I went to the NICU and they said um, they didn't know I wasn't supposed to, you know, that I was sneaking around the hospital. <laughs> and my babies looked really beautiful, but they were in two separate Isolates, and so I picked one up and tried to put it, put them together because I wanted them together, but it, they didn't fit. Five years after her darkest moments, with Glenn on her side and her dream of becoming a mother realized, Lori's life had done a complete 180. 
Raising twins was no easy task, but she was exactly where she wanted to be. But to loop back around to my Adam and Eve reference earlier, there is no paradise without a snake trying to tear it all down. For Lori, things got bad again, starting with a snake named Ed Dennis. You begin to think about investment in the future and yeah. like basically, you know, how, how do you secure your family's future? Then uh, you meet Ed. Yes. So who is Ed? He was a man that was hired as a general manager. And I asked Glenn to spend more time with, with the family. And, you know, Ed ran Lupin. And then it turned out he was a con artist. Why did Glenn trust him? Um, because he had done such a good job and he talked a good talk. And then I just told him that, you know, I'm a mama bear and I will come after you if you hurt my family. And then when did you first realize things were not as they seemed? When the business started going on a steep downhill and then I, I questioned it and I what said... What does a steep downhill mean? Um, he got rid of key staff people. The restaurant totally changed and he spent all his time, you know, eating, um, I don't know, steaks and drinking, you know, drinking us out of our wine cellar. And then when a, a document surfaced that Glenn had sold him uh, the property for $10 and then that was it. Wait, what? What? Yeah, he did. He submitted a forged document that uh, Glenn sold sold him the property for ten dollars, and then we had to go through a whole eviction. Wait, what was the conversation like? I mean, because he was on the property with you, right? Yeah. So did did you have uh, a word? With yeah. Him? Yes. Yes. And what we did asked, you say? I said we're we're taking over uh, operations, and you need to leave. And he said no. And then we called the sheriff, and they said this is civil. You're going to have to go to court. And so he's staying here. Yeah. The whole time. Right. And he's trying, he's basically trying to steal this yes. land from under you. Yes. Did it ever, did, did it ever become more, was it, were voices ever raised? Was it? Yes. Yes. It was, um, our strategy was how fast could we get rid of him and take over? And it was again, that crossroad because Glenn had been misdiagnosed with ALS and, um, and was going to be needing surgery that, you know, what do we do as a family? So he asked me, do you want to continue looping once we get it? possession back from Ed or do you what do you want to do and I said I think Lupin's too special I said let's continue it and and I'll manage it was that a hard thing to say yes to so he went in the hospital for a spinal laminectomy and it was going to be a 12-hour surgery so after the first couple hours he flatlined so they took him off the operating table and um, for the week that he was in the hospital do, doing a steroid treatment, I said, OK, honey, I'm coming here every day and you're going to have to teach me how to run a business. And so what was the most important things that you learned, you know, in management training at Stanford? So you how does this Ed case eventually resolve? Well, we went through an eviction and it was long and drawn out. Of course, he fought it every step of the way and no one wanted him here. And um, uh, he just had recently married uh, a woman uh, that he met here and they barricaded themselves in our office for several months. What? Several months? Yes. With what? What did they barricade with? I don't, I don't know. And then we just took um, the gate down and... Um, this is it, all at war. Yes. This and is- we... <laughs> 
barricades. Yes, in the and uh, yeah, it was pretty bad. The sheriffs come. Do they go to the barricade? <laughs> and he he had left. He left. He left. When yeah. the sheriffs came, you know, he's like, I got to skip town. Yeah. He had his um, vehicles packed up and uh, he stole um, whatever that wasn't nailed down. And when we called the sheriff, they said, it's civil. You got to go to court for that. Did you decide to go to court? Yeah, we that? did. We did. Well, the eviction was um, we definitely had to do yeah, the yeah. eviction to get him off him and, and, his, get the sheriff there and too. His, his wife off the property. Yeah, it was a very, very ugly time. And the fact that, you know, Glenn was so sick and then he ended up in a rehab hospital on really strong painkillers. So he became a different person and his memory was not very good. And he would get really mad at me saying that you don't come to visit me. You're, you know, a really bad wife. And I said, yes, no, I've been here. And did you see like glimpses of him still there? Um, Yeah, he he um, recovered completely. And what? He did? Yes. Okay, so I'm really interested in this. How, how does how did he incorporate that time period? So if he if he if he came like back from that, how did he interpret how he was acting before? He um he didn't remember it, and really? yeah, he said that he had the surgery and he got up and walked. I said no, that's not how it happened. And he had a halo that was screwed into his skull. Uh, he had uh, an infection, and so he was in the hospital for a while before he went to the, the, the rehab hospital. So he doesn't—he didn't really remember all of it. And once he was off the medication, he was back to his his normal self, and he was doing physical therapy, doing everything possible to to get better. So he lost the use of his right hand and arm. So he did everything, including beat all of us in ping pong with his left hand, right with his left hand, um, and so. So, yeah, he um, he really wanted to be there for us. Lori spent months in the trenches learning about doing the kind of business and logistical work that she hated. That all while trying to raise two kids of her own and watching the man she loved grow sick and unrecognizable. But she was battling for survival of her home. She had no choice but to persevere and learn the ropes of how to run Lupin. Her and Glenn's business plan was still on track. And with Ed's eviction, they won the war over Lupin's soul. But again, this is a story about resilience. The struggle that never lets up. The light at the end of the tunnel that never seems to arrive. And Lori's story isn't over yet. I'm also wondering the dynamic of running a business with your significant other. At times, I just ran it when he, when he was ill. He, for example, was, uh, you know, much better at dealing with, you know, electrical upgrades and contractors. And I was working in the office with, you know, front desk reception scene where 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 are things falling through the, the cracks and so forth. But um, we had great respect for each other. And and we were also really on the same page on raising our daughters and that they came first. When we didn't agree which was less than 10% of the time, it was really problematic. And so we went to see a therapist that counsels business partners. Um, he, he apologized to me and said, you know, I have made decisions on my life without considering how it affects anybody else. And it, it was just now that, you know, the things that we've talked about that you disagreed with, you know, they really affect you and, and our daughters. And I'm really sorry. I never... I, you know, I, you know, always been in business as, you know, like the, the guy, the guy. 
leading up to 2015. Where was Glenn? Where was Lupin? Where were you? Glenn had asked me to take him to the hospital, and this is around 2010, and he thought he was having um, kidney stones again, and they found out that he needed repairs on his heart for um, potential aneurysms. So they scheduled him for surgery uh, the next day on his birthday. He got he got infections and almost died several times. So they would call me at two in the morning and saying that he's fading, you need to come to the hospital now. And so um, it was like really touch and go. And again, you know, one of the times he was on the powerful pain medication and he, you know, was not himself. And then he would say, I'm not going back to ICU until my wife's here. So I would, you know, get up at four in the morning saying, honey, we got to go back to ICU because it's, you know, the best. And so I would do 12 hours on and 12 hours off. And I would be at the hospital um, counting my drive time, uh, you know, with him. And he did so much better. And I outsourced my children. So um, my family and um, their godparents and another family here took care of him. So I had really great support. It was it was a really scary time. During that time period was the discussion of mortality something that you guys talked about or was it with always the intention of like you're gonna get better it was always he was gonna get better and he always did get better they you know expected him to to die twice now and uh or well a couple times you know in the icu and and he came back and he came back stronger than ever one of the scans they found that he had um a tumor on his kidney and he had i didn't tell anybody he had uh he had kidney kidney cancer we kept that to ourselves we just just kept having hospital visits. And um, again, I outsourced my children and, um, you know, was trying to be there for him. And and when I was there, he would, you know, really calm down and not try to pull out his IVs or his... Why was he trying to pull everything out? Probably because he wanted the medication or he wanted to get up and walk away. And he had a scan and his annual uh, checkup was really good. He was cancer free. And um, then he tells me at five in the morning, I think I'm going to have a heart attack. I went to the hospital with him and then one of the neighbors followed with my daughters and uh, he wasn't having a heart attack. Um, he was having a, a, an aortic aneurysm. Uh, he had a tear and the vein, go- one of the veins going into his heart. And so he was, he was bleeding out. Nobody in the, in the, the emergency room would look at me or my daughters. They'd all look down at their feet. It was like really, really surreal. And so they said that um, the surgeon was on the way to repair the aneurysm. And they said the surgeon's here. And they said, keep rubbing his body to keep the circulation going. And then he, um, he, he told me and the girls, he loved me. And then they, intubated him and then he died on the operating table how did you talk to your girls about that well they asked me if they were going to school that day i said no i said you know your dad died so sorry this is like it's also you know he got better so many times before yeah how do you process that you don't so um, they were 14 years old. So we had, 
you know, his, 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 uh, memorial, we had people fly in from all over the world. The people and the cards and food and everything was just pouring in like crazy. What, and, what does that make you feel? I don't know. I was just like, where do I go from, you know, after a relationship with somebody for 32 years? And, you know, having, you know, you know, needing him at, you know, a critical time, you know, they were, you know, teenagers and not having him there. So I, I talked to them and said, okay, are we going to continue looping or what are we going to do? And one daughter said, she doesn't want anything to change. She only, um, she wants to stay here and, um, and she just loves you know the nature and everything she she wants is here and the other daughter said no I want to have a normal life and live in town where they have sidewalks and street lights and my teacher told me you know it's closer to everything you know and I just worked all the time and then I told him you're gonna have to help me work to to keep the business going so I said you guys are now um, water operators in training and with your learner's permit you're driving water samples to the to the lab and you're doing my texts while I'm driving you know answering my texts and emails and so yeah they they started working young I mean it sounds like you just you 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 threw yourself back into it many of the times it was like um, I had a family to take care of and a community to take care of so I wasn't this like entrepreneur that you, I was, it was more, I was taking care of my family and taking care of the community. Do you think that the, the responsibility to the community, to your daughters, to Lupin helped you move forward with, with this thing that Glenn had, had, had passed to you? Or do you think it was a burden or like what, what, how did it, how did it help or hurt? I don't know how to answer that. I just knew that it was um, important to continue, and it was also uh, important to um, to grow the business, you know, for, for our family financially. And so, the best way to to grow the business was um, to you know attract you know a younger clientele and to attract more women. And our web designer actually you know, put down that uh, on our website that Lupin is woman-owned and operated, then all of a sudden, you know, uh, between that and putting um, Lupin on hip camp, we got the clientele that we wanted. And so it started to... Turn around. Turn around again. And uh, like going towards uh, 2020. Yes. Again, a next big event that rocked the world, COVID. Yes. How did that affect your business? Well, at first, um, I was scared. How was I going to make payroll? And um, we, you know, we were all, the office was closed. The restaurant was closed. All the events that we had booked um, with different groups, um, we couldn't do. And then uh, all of a sudden, people wanted to be in nature. And since we have so much outdoor space, we just moved everything outdoors and said, okay, if you come to to yoga, you have to be, you know, six feet apart and it's only going to be outdoors. And the people that used to complain, I don't want to do yoga outdoors because, um, you know, there's always a fly that lands on my nose or I'm in the sun too much or it's too cool in the shade. They stopped complaining and they just really wanted to, um, you know, 
get, get out of being um, you know, isolated. And so the business actually improved. What do you think Lupin is today? What does it embody for you, for the people here? And what are you most looking forward to? You know, Lupin is not just a business, it's also a community. And uh, uh, I get a lot of, you know, emails and cards and phone calls from people saying that their happiest memories, you know, have been at Lupin or they've made their lifelong friends here. I know at least over 100 couples that met here and married. So I think providing a place where, you know, people can be themselves. And one of my friends who um, was uh, running a camp for um, gorillas in Africa, her her husband came and said, Lori, you run a nature retreat, except for instead of animals, you, you have, you know, human beings. And I said, yeah, I guess we do for the whole human being. And I like to see people learning how to get rid of, you know, their shame of their body or, you know, their misconceptions about other people. And I think it 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 creates a, a space to meet people from, you know, different walks of life that you wouldn't meet you know, normally. What advice would you give yourself at the start of this of this journey when you maybe first discovered that these kind of communities existed or when you first had the responsibility of starting to care for the business of Lupin, what advice would you give yourself at either of those points? That you're stronger than, than you, you know, and that you're more resilient than you would ever believe. I feel like I judge or I noticed that I, I judged clothed bodies more than I judged naked ones. That's super interesting. All right. We're going to go back to my conversation with Elise. And something I talked to Lori about was like, when you have clothes, they represent your interest, your socioeconomic status a little bit more. And because they're, I guess, like covering up what would some would say like uh, deviations from the ideal body. For some reason, I feel like that makes it easier to judge. But when you're confronted with the full form and you're seeing just someone's like nakedness in front of you, the the ideal like faded away. And I was just left with like, wow, like look at all these diverse bodies and look how beautiful each one of them is. Yeah. Like a lot of people come there to become more comfortable in their bodies. And when you see all these bodies just like bare, not trying to cover up anything, not trying to do some pose to hide whatever, you just see people from for who they are, um, I think it becomes a lot easier to accept yourself and your imperfections um, and then accept the imperfections of others. Do you also think that you aren't going there with the purpose to be noticed, to be looked at, to be fond over? You're going to be around other people who want the same things that you do in that sense or want to discover similar things about themselves. Nudity was the only filter for this community, right? This is the only filter that, that was there. Yet it was so interesting that that filter was enough for it to feel like a, a community that was bonded by so much more. Again, the only thing that, that bonded these people was that they were okay being nude, but that also signaled that they were okay being vulnerable. Yeah, They were okay opening up. They were okay having a conversation with a stranger that they didn't know and going to a level of depth that you wouldn't really be able to. I think it's just like the random sample size of 
uh, of the population. This was like a really good litmus test of, of vulnerability. And that kind of like realization was really beautiful. It's like these simple filters can create such deep communities. Do you think with the vulnerability aspect, do you think that in conversations that you had, uh, it was sped up how much you would be willing to share or to talk about because of that component? Um, yeah, I mean, I remember that. So Lori, Lori, Ariana and I, we went out to the back of the property and we did that second part of the interview. And there was a moment where like, you know, we kind of dug deep in the interview and Lori started crying and I was, um, I, you know, I, I was offering my condolences and empathy and I just like was struck by like, I'm in this beautiful spot in nature, completely vulnerable with this person in both like body and emotion and spirit. And like, she is completely opening up to me as someone that she just met about things that she hasn't even fully processed. And I remember like, I remember noticing like the, the, the trees, uh, uh, like floating in the wind, the sunset going down and her, her sobbing and thinking like, this is human connection. And like, this is like, this is, this is why, this is why I do this. You know, and this is this is this is this is what I love, you know, connecting with someone in such a deep way that I feel their their pain and their happiness and and they have a chance to share that but also unload it. And and I just remember thinking feeling very grateful for that moment. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Nae B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox. Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Therese Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadit Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz. And Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Ross, and Diana Marie Kendaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.